As we look to God's Word in Matthew's Gospel, just a, a note about the preaching over the next weeks and months. We're going to march through Matthew up until Easter, which I believe is mid-April this year. And then uh, after Easter, which will be around Matthew chapter 20, we're going to take a side road for about four weeks and address uh, the uh, book of Jonah uh, coming off of Easter. And then we will return back uh, to Matthew to finish up the, the final seven or eight chapters. So we're in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 uh, to 28. As you're turning there, I want to point out something most obvious, and that is the book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, It's no coincidence that the four Gospels come at the beginning of the New Testament. Not only do they describe uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are bios of Jesus, who he is and what he did, all that the Old Testament foreshadowed, made promises about, anticipated, and the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels goes on to explain, but it is here in the Gospels that the door of God's grace and mercy begins to open up in his redemptive history, in his redemptive story, wider and wider. And it's what we see in the story and in the text this morning, that in Christ, the door of God's mercy during his ministry begins to open up so that not only is the light of his grace shed in surprising places, new places, but we begin to see faith found among people least expected. The Gospels are in the New Testament because they introduce to us something new. And what is new is not the reality of God's grace and mercy, which we see throughout the Old Testament, but to whom this grace begins to flow increasingly more and more. Unlikely places, unlikely people. And yet we're going to see a twist uh, in this encounter between Jesus and a Canaanite woman. Because while we know God's grace is unmerited, it's undeserving, in this story, Jesus tests this individual, to see whether his grace is truly desired in her life, whether he is truly valued and pursued. And those are the initial questions we might be asking ourselves as we come to the text. Do I desire the grace and mercy of God? Do I desire to see it at work in my life? Am I pursuing uh, the Lord Jesus himself in my life? And so we listen now to God's word, Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21. The faith of a Canaanite woman. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. She was crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
Well, at the heart of this encounter between Jesus and this Canaanite woman is the evidence of faith. Jesus commends her faith in verse 28. O woman, great is your faith. And throughout the Gospels, we see faith exercised in a number of ways. We see it exercised through sacrificial giving. For example, in Mark 12, uh, the woman uh, impoverished who gives the two copper coins out of the poverty of what she has, all that she gave, Jesus commends her faith, a sacrificial kind of giving. Uh, at other times, we see faith demonstrated through kind of a courageous, uh, courageous obedience. A couple of weeks ago, we saw Peter stepping out of the boat amidst the wind and the waves and the trials of life at the word of Jesus. Uh, Command me to come to you, Jesus. And we see faith uh, evidenced. Here, we see faith evidenced through persistence. Bold persistence. Even in the midst of resistance, we see resistance from the disciples who say, send her away. We even see a kind of resistance from Jesus himself, first with silence and then two more responses that perhaps would be hard to hear. But she perseveres. She persists after the presence of Christ and after his grace. And so we see faith, among other things, is about persistence. Persistence in obedience, amidst opposition, perseverance after the presence and grace of Christ, even when the Lord seems silent or distant at times in our lives. And this is a great time of year, of course, to talk about persistence, because it's the new year, and people have probably made New Year's resolutions. How many of you have made New Year's resolutions? You're going to be a little hesitant because... It means you're going to have to follow through. I read an article about 60% of Americans make New Year's resolutions while only 8% actually keep them. If you've heard of Strava, Strava is a social network for athletes. And last year, Strava analyzed about 31 million global activities in January and was able to pinpoint the date after the new year when people actually give up on their resolution. And you know the day? January 12th, which, by the way, is today. <laughs> so if you're thinking, up, thinking of giving up on your resolution, press on. Some of us, some of us maybe have already given up. Uh, people are resolved for less than two weeks. And I believe it. Uh, I was at the Y exercising New Year's Day morning. And the gym, of course, is packed. You could not find a treadmill, right? But it happens every year within... Days, within a week, the stream of people begins to kind of fall back and flow into normal again. But it's not just New Year's resolutions and uh, commitments to exercise. It it happens in, we could say, in much more serious areas of life where a, a new excitement and resolve turns to complacency. It happens in relationships. It happens in the marriage relationship. Love. Uh, can turn cold. Joy and caring and serving for each other can turn to selfishness and resentment and division. And it can happen in the life of faith. That initial love and pursuit after the Lord God can be compromised and it can begin to be neglected. How many of us have known friends, family members who have been professing faith in the Lord and yet now no interest at all in the things of God? or the Word of God, or the people 
of God. And Jesus' interaction with this Canaanite woman reveals the value and the necessity of persistence as a part of Christian living and the Christian faith. And what it is that fuels a persistent faith. And the story begins with Jesus withdrawing to a place where faith would have an unlikely presence at all. Uh, We're told in verse 21, if you look there, that Jesus went away from there and withdrew, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus had just been in Galilee, right around the Sea of Galilee, at the end of chapter 14 in Gennesaret, the northwest corner, right on the edge of the sea. And now he has withdrawn there, gone north and west to these two regions, Tyre and Sidon, about 30, 40 miles north and west. It's in the province of Syria. One commentator made note, when you hear these words, Tyre and Sidon, these are uh, biblical code names for pagan land. You might even think of our own society or culture uh, surrounding us as a kind of pagan land. It's not where you would expect here in Tyre and Sidon to find true faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a woman, she's a Gentile, she's in pagan territory, Uh, she has little to nothing in common with Israel, likely little knowledge of God's redemptive acts in history outside of the covenant community. And yet, as John Calvin pointed out, she had received a certain taste of godliness. News somehow had spread to where she was. News had reached this dark corner and place in the world. And now we know she's tasted of the sweet knowledge of Christ and of his gospel to some degree, because as she cries out, how does she address Jesus? Have mercy on me. And with two titles, O Lord, Lord, Son of David. Uh, Lord is a Gentile kind of universal title. He is Lord of all the nations. And then we have Son of David, an Old Testament Israelite title or language. This is the one who comes to sit on the throne of David, to usher in an everlasting kingdom. O Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. She has learned, however little, of who Jesus is. What a contrast if we look at the whole of chapter 15. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus had said to the Jews, to the Pharisees, and the scribes, those who claim to to be about the truth, who know the truth, experts in the truth, what did he say of them? You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. You honor the Lord with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. And now, in contrast, you have this woman outside the covenant community in kind of dark Gentile lands, and she's crying out, have mercy on me. Lord, Son of David. It's a good reminder, as J.C. Ryle put it very succinctly, it is grace, he said, not place, that makes believers. It is grace, not place, ultimately, that makes people believers. There is no person, there is no place, there is no region outside of the reach of God's grace and mercy. Just two days ago, at the Y, I met a woman probably in her 50s. We had only a two-minute exchange. She learned in that 
short time, I'm a pastor. And she said, I'm a Christian. I was born and raised in India, been a Hindu all my life, lived in Connecticut for 18 years, and I came to faith in Christ four years ago. I go to Crossroads a Church, I guess in East Hartford. Kind of, kind of blown away. What a remarkable journey. How did she come to faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Certainly of hearing of his goodness and gospel. Faith is not outside the reach. Grace is not outside the reach of anyone. It's not outside the reach of any of us. And here we have faith born by God's grace in this woman. This persistent faith. And how is it demonstrated? It's demonstrated not only by a reordering of one's thinking. She's not only heard the knowledge of who he is, but a reordering of desires in our lives. She's expressing a desire for him and his mercy. She's demonstrating that, crying out, Lord, Son of David, likely bordering on worship. But notice what it is very practically that is driving her to this place of crying out for mercy. Have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. It is pain. It is affliction that she is experiencing and which God often uses as the vehicle to bring people to him. Uh, Listen again to what J.C. Ryle says. For we see that affliction sometimes proves a blessing to a person's soul. The woman was sorely tried. She had seen her darling child vexed with a devil and unable to relieve her. Yet that trouble brought her to Christ and taught her to pray. We find ourselves as God's people at times in deep distress, in significant trouble, under a great burden in our lives. And this story here is not only about the healing of a daughter, it's not only about the persistent faith of a mother. It is about that object, it is about that person who alone can not only meet our needs, but satisfy the longings of people's hearts. That's what she is seeking after. That's what we ought to be seeking after. The great problem that the world faces is not a lack of desire. But what is sought after to fulfill that desire in life? What's surprising in this story is not only that we find faith in an unlikely place and an unlikely person, but when this woman cries out for mercy, Jesus gives a very surprising response. Have mercy on me, O Lord, she says. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer her a word. We're probably less surprised by the next words from the disciples. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. It seems that the disciples get it wrong, but we're not surprised. They often get it wrong. They often mistake people's needs with inconvenience or a problem. They're the ones who will seek to prevent the children from coming to Jesus. They're the ones who wanted to send the crowds away, who were hungry and in need. And here they feel disrupted by this woman's loud cry. But what about Jesus' response? It's silence. 
What is happening here? He did not answer her a word. Silence can be uncomfortable. But we have a saying for that. An awkward silence. That was an awkward silence. If after the service, one of you approaches me and asks a question and I just stand there and look at you for a while, that's going to be an awkward silence. But more than that, you're probably going to think there's something wrong with Pastor Will. Yeah? Something, is, something is not right here. But some of the commentators actually suggest that Jesus' initial response is not to be discouraging, it's actually to be encouraging because he doesn't send her away. He doesn't say, I can't meet your needs. Why are you asking me this? I can't help. There's something deeper happening here in this exchange and, and, and uh, relationship here, this interchange. Perhaps there's an underlying tension. Remember where Jesus is. He has withdrawn where he was normally doing ministry, into Gentile territory. And he has withdrawn there not for ministry. He has withdrawn there for rest. In fact, in Mark's account of this story, he tells us that Jesus actually didn't want anyone to know he was even there. He's in Gentile territory. He's confronted by a Gentile woman of apparent faith. But his mission is to Israel. Not only does he say this in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but remember back in chapter 10, this is the great chapter on missions as Jesus sent his disciples out. These are the first words Jesus gave by way of instruction as he sent them out. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They have a priority in God's unfolding plan of, of redemption. They have priority. Perhaps it's for us like having friends, family members over for dinner, a special dinner. You're hosting. Uh, your guests have come. You're in the middle of dinner. It's for them. You've set this time aside, and you get a knock on the door. It's your neighbor. He's not asking for sugar. He has a real, real need. He's looking for counsel. What do you do? What do you do? We know in time, in the story of the Bible, in the story of God's unfolding redemption, the gospel is going to go forth to all the Gentiles, to all the nations. By Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out like a flood to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But that part of the story has not yet come. And yet you have this Gentile expressing faith. She's kind of pressing in. What's happening? Well, really, her faith serves as a kind of prelude. It's a prelude of what is going to be for the Gentile nations. It's a preparation. We have a prelude every time we gather for worship each Lord's Day. What is the purpose of that prelude? It's preparation for an event. It's preparation for an act, for our time of worship. It's preparing uh, the way. And this Gentile woman's faith is a prelude of what is going uh, to come. 
But there's something even more dynamic happening here in this uh, interchange. Because in Jesus' words to the woman, what is he doing? He's testing her. He's testing her. He's stretching her faith. Jesus responds to her cry for mercy first with silence. Then in verse 24, with the words, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How many people at this point would already have turned away? I sought for mercy. I heard only silence. I was looking for help, but I heard that the needs of others had greater priority. But what does true faith do? True faith continues to pursue after the Lord Jesus. Because it knows it's only going to find real peace, real life, real joy in Him, in nothing but Him. So she persists. She even falls down in worship. In verse 25, she came and she knelt before Him, saying, Lord, help me. Those words, knelt before Him, it's the word proskuneo. It's the word used for worship. That's what worship is, a kneeling before, bowing down. And yet, once again, she's tested. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. However one reads those words, Jesus seems to be, as Calvin said, cutting away all hope. Who would not simply walk away? First, it was silence. Then it was, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now a third time. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she persists. What is this children's bread that Jesus is referring to? It's not God's grace in general. It's not bread for the world. It's not the, the sun and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. It's not physical breath, general provision, family and friends, those things that are common to all mankind. No, the children's bread is that grace given only to those in Jesus Christ, the true children of Abraham. It's just like the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. It's not for all mankind. It's for those who have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But that's exactly what she's expressing. Reception, desire for His grace, His lordship over her life. And so she says remarkably, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even house pets benefit from the scraps. She's expressing a bit of what the psalmist says in Psalm 84. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Just let me taste of your grace and your mercy in my life. Not looking for position or acclaim, but a taste of his mercy. It can be summed up in Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell with the Lord dwell in his house, and gaze upon his beauty. What is it that you are seeking after in life? What is that one thing you are pressing for? 
in your life. That we, as a people, are pressing after, are seeking after. In 1738, while serving in his Northampton congregation and pastorate, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on Luke 16, verse 16, which says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone is pressing their way into it. Interesting language. I think it captures very much what we see expressed in this woman's faith. People are pressing their way into it, indeed, by His grace. And Edwards says this, Pressing into the kingdom denotes a strength of desire, a strong interest in Christ. Minds, as it were, possessed with and wrapped up in concern about it. To obtain salvation is desired by them above all things in the world. The concern is so great it shuts out other concerns. And then he says this, Two things are needed in order that these strong resolutions come about. One, there must be a sense of the great importance of this mercy sought after. And two, there must be a sense of encouragement or opportunity to obtain it, to seek it. One, to recognize its importance, to see the value of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And two, to take opportunity to obtain it. And this woman saw the significance and as Jesus drew near, she seized the opportunity. I want to leave us with just a few things to ponder. One is a question, and I think it's a question that comes right out of this text and this story. When we experience a need in our lives, a burden or an affliction, is it a solution that we are after, or is it the Lord Jesus himself? Because sometimes we want a remedy, we want a solution We want a way out, some kind of help, but we do not necessarily desire Him. But if Christ, if Christ's gracious presence and His true Word is what we need most, I ought to pursue Him above all else, in His Word, in prayer. Lord, I desire You above all things. Secondly, this story reminds us of how our faith affects those around us. What would have been lost if if this woman did not persistently pursue Christ and His mercy? Not only would she not have known His grace, but her daughter would have had no hope at all. The daughter is restored not because of her own faith, but because of the act and faith of her mother. Incredibly. Our commitment, our pursuit after the Lord Jesus Christ affects directly those around us. And then finally, I would say we should put ourselves not only in the shoes of the mother. Indeed, we want a persistent faith, one that perseveres, but we ought to put ourselves in the lot, in the place of the daughter. Because in a way, that's all of us, helpless or without hope, except in the intercession of someone else, in the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the woman, Christ interceded for us. He gave his life as a ransom. By his stripes, by his crucifixion, by his work, uh, he heals his people. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith. Indeed, we know it is a gift, Lord. And yet it is something as well we are 
called and commanded to exercise. So we pray that you would be merciful to us, Lord, that we would see and seize the opportunity of your presence to take hold of you in response to you taking hold of us in your redeeming grace. We pray, Lord, that we would see the value and the blessing of our faith in you by which we rest and receive you as our Lord and our Savior. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.